Though one of the parts of the earth best fitted for man, New Zealand was probably about the last of such lands occupied by the human race. The first European to find it was a Dutch sea captain who was looking for something else and who thought it a part of South America, from which it is sundered by 5,000 miles of ocean. It takes its name from a province of Holland to which it does not bear the remotest likeness, and is usually regarded as the antipodes of England, but is not. Taken possession of by an English navigator, whose action, at first adopted, was afterwards reversed by his country's rulers, it was only annexed at length by the English government, which did not want it, to keep it from the French who did. The colony's capital bears the name of a famous British commander, whose sole connection with the country was a flat refusal to aid in adding it to the empire. Those who settled it meant it to be a theater for the Wakefield land system. The spirit of the land laws, however, which its settlers have gradually developed is a complete negation of Wakefield's principle. Some of the chief New Zealand settlements were founded by church associations, but the colony's education system has long been purely secular. From the first those who governed the islands labored earnestly to preserve and benefit the native race, and on the whole the treatment extended to them has been just and often generous yet the wars with them were long, obstinate, and mischievous beyond the common. The pioneer colonists looked upon New Zealand as an agricultural country, but its main industries have turned out to be grazing and mining. From the character of its original settlers it was expected to be the most conservative of the colonies, it is just now ranked as the most democratic. Not only by its founders, but for many years afterwards, Irish were avowedly or tacitly excluded from the immigrants sent to it. Now, however, at least one person in eight in the colony is of that race. It would be easy to expand this list into an essay on the vanity of human wishes. It would not be hard to add thereto a formidable catalogue of serious mistakes made both in England and New Zealand by those responsible for the colony's affairs mistakes, some of which, at least, seem now to argue an almost inconceivable lack of knowledge and foresight. So constantly have the anticipations of its officials and settlers been reversed in the story of New Zealand that it becomes none too easy to trace any thread of guiding wisdom or consistent purpose therein. The broad result, however, has been a fine and vigorous colony. Some will see in its record of early struggles, difficulties and mistakes endured, paid for and surmounted, a signal instance of the overruling care of providence. To the cynic the tale must be merely a minor portion of the supreme ironic procession, with laughter of gods in the background. To the writer it seems, at least, to give a very notable proof of the collective ability of a colonizing race to overcome obstacles and repair blunders. The colony of New Zealand is not a monument of the genius of any one man or group of men. It is the outcome of the vitality and industry of a people obstinate, but resourceful, selfish, but honest, often ill-informed and wrong, but with the saving virtue of an ability to learn from their own mistakes. From one standpoint the story of New Zealand ought not to take long to tell. It stretches over less time than that of almost any land with any pretensions to size, beauty, or interest. New Zealand was only discovered by Europeans in the reign of our King Charles I, and even then the Dutch explorer, 
who sighted its lofty coasts, did not set foot upon them. The first European to step onto its shores did so only when the great American colonies were beginning to fret at the ties which bound them to England. The pioneers of New Zealand colonization, the missionaries, whalers, and flax and timber traders, did not come upon the scene until the years of Napoleon's decline and fall. Queen Victoria had been on the throne for three years before the colonial office was reluctantly compelled to add the islands to an empire which the official mind regarded as already overgrown. Yet so striking, varied, and attractive are the country's features, so full of bustle, change, and experiment have its few years been, that lack of material is about the last complaint that need be made by a writer on New Zealand. The list of books on the colony is indeed so long that its bibliography is a larger volume than this, and the chief plea to be urged for this history must be its brevity a quality none too common in colonial literature. A New Zealander writing in London may be forgiven if he begins by warning English readers not to expect in the aspect of New Zealand either a replica of the British Islands or anything resembling Australia. The long, narrow, mountainous islands upon which Abel Jansen Tasman stumbled in December, 1642, are so far from being the antipodes of Britain that they lie on an average 12 degrees nearer the equator. Take Liverpool as a central city of the United Kingdom, it lies nearly on the 53rd parallel of north latitude. Wellington, the most central city of New Zealand, is not far from the 41st parallel of southern latitude. True, New Zealand has no warm gulf stream to wash her shores. But neither is she chilled by east winds blowing upon her from the colder half of a continent. Neither her contour nor climate is in the least Australian. It is not merely that 1,200 miles of ocean separate the flat, rounded, massive-looking continent from the high, slender, irregular islands. The ocean is deep and stormy. Until the 19th century there was absolutely no going to and fro across it. Many plants are found in both countries, but they are almost all small and not in any way conspicuous. Only one bird of passage migrates across the intervening sea. The dominating trees of Australia are myrtles, called eucalypts, those of New Zealand are beeches, called birches, and various species of pines. The strange marsupials, the snakes, the great running birds, the wild dogs of Australia, have no counterpart in New Zealand. The climate of Australia, south of Capricorn, is, except on the eastern and southeastern coast, as hot and dry as the South African. And the Australian mountains, moderate in height and flattened, as a rule, at the summit, remind one not a little of the table-topped elevations so familiar to riders on the Veldt and Karoo. The western coast of New Zealand is one of the rainiest parts of the empire. Even the drier east coast only now, and then suffers from drought on the west coast the thermometer seldom rises above 75 degrees in the shade, on the other not often above 90 degrees. New Zealand, too, is a land of cliffs, ridges, peaks, and cones. Some of the loftier volcanoes are still active, and the vapor of their craters mounts skyward above white fields of eternal snow. The whole length of the South Island is ridged by alpine ranges, which, though not quite equal in height to the giants of Switzerland, 
do not lose by comparison with the finest of the Pyrenees. No man with an eye for the beautiful or the novel would call Australia either unlovely or dull. It is not, however, a land of sharp and sudden contrasts, New Zealand is. The Australian woods, too, are park-like, their trees, though interesting, and by no means without charm, have a strong family likeness. Their prevailing colors are yellow, brown, light green, and gray. Light and heat penetrate them everywhere. The cool, noiseless forests of New Zealand are deep jungles, giant thickets, like those tropic labyrinths where traveler and hunter have to cut their path through tangled bushes and interlacing creepers. Their general hue is not light, but dark green, relieved, it is true, by soft fern fronds, light-tinted shrubs, and crimson or snow-white flowers. Still the tone is somewhat somber, and would be more noticeably so, but for the prevalent sunshine, and the great variety of species of trees and ferns growing side by side. The distinction of the forest scenery may be summed up best in the words dignity and luxuriance. The tall trees grow close together. For the most part their leaves are small, but their close neighborhood hinders this from spoiling the effect. The eye wanders over swell after swell, and into cavern after cavern of unbroken foliage. To the botanist who enters them these silent, stately forests show such a wealth of intricate, tangled life that the delighted examiner hardly knows which way to turn first. As a rule the lower part of the trunks is branchless, stems rise up like tall pillars in long colonnades. But this does not mean that they are bare. Climbing ferns, lichens, pendant grasses, air plants, and orchids drape the columns. Tough lianas swing in air, coiling roots overspread the ground. Bushes, shrubs, reeds and ferns of every size and height combine to make a woven thicket, filling up and even choking the spaces between trunk and trunk. Supple, snaky vines writhe amid the foliage and bind the undergrowth together. The forest trees are evergreens, and even in midwinter are fresh-looking. The glowing autumnal tints of English woods are never theirs, yet they show every shade of green, from the light of the puriri to the dark of the era, from the bronze-hued willow-like leaves of the tawa to the vivid green of the matai, or the soft golden green of the drooping rimo. Then, though the ground flowers cannot compare in number with those of England or Australia, the islands are the chosen land of the fern, and are fortunate in flowering creepers, shrubs, and trees. There are the Coromico bush with white and purple blossoms, and the white convolvulus which covers whole thickets with blooms, delicate as carved ivory, whiter than milk. There are the starry clematis, cream-colored or white, and the manuka, with tiny but numberless flowers. The yellow kowai, seen on the hillsides, shows the russet tint of autumn at the height of springtime. Yet the king of the forest flowers is, perhaps, the crimson, feathery rata. Is it a creeper, or is it a tree? Both opinions are held, both are right. One species of the rata is an ordinary climber, another springs sometimes from the ground, sometimes from the fork of a tree into which the seed is blown or dropped. Thence it throws out long rootlets, some to earth, others which wrap round the trunk on which it is growing. Gradually this rata becomes a tree itself, 
kills its supporter, and growing round the dead stick, ends in almost hiding it from view.